Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners may wish to know that the following conversation contains references to and discussions of deceased persons. Hello, this is Making Sense of History, the podcast where we find out about the present by running the clock back to see where it all started. I'm Nick Eckstein from the History Department at the University of Sydney, talking to you from Wadanjedi land. In the first part of this podcast, I talked with Mark McKenna about the historical background to the referendum that is to take place in Australia late in 2023. We talked about the ways in which the Australian Constitution officially ignored, indeed erased, the political presence of Indigenous Australians from our democracy. We talked about the small step towards integration marked by the 1967 referendum and the Uluru Statement from the Heart, whose authors in 2017 called upon Australians to finish the work started by the 1967 referendum. What Mark and I did not discuss in any detail is the human consequences of the racist exclusion written into the original Australian Constitution. Perhaps a good way of approaching this distressing topic, Mark, is in fact to ask why the authors of the Uluru Statement asked for a voice to Parliament rather than for financial compensation or some other process. Why a voice? Even today, Indigenous people, with a few exceptions, aren't heard, I think. Non-Indigenous Australia does not genuinely listen to them. And I I think the important point here I'd like to make is that non-Indigenous Australia listens to Aboriginal people and culture on its own terms, on white Australia's terms. In other words, we have Indigenous culture recognised in so many ways throughout our culture, welcome to country, sporting ceremonies, Olympic ceremonies. There are many ways in which we recognise and acknowledge Aboriginal culture, but I think that predominantly those ways are superficial, uh, they're ornamental, and that to date we haven't questioned ourselves hard enough to say, well, what about substantial recognition? What about substantial change in the Constitution? So that's why I think that the voice has been asked for. And also historically, if you look at the history of what has occurred to Aboriginal people throughout Australian colonisation, they've been incarcerated, moved around without their consent, their children have been legally, quote, abducted. They've even been killed en masse on the frontier. I can't see that we've genuinely arrived at a point where we can say we have listened to Aboriginal people. There is an extraordinary amount of empathy required on the part of non-Indigenous Australians to step outside their own immediate concerns and what they want and try and understand what it's like for others who've been outside the system, who've been excluded, who've been persecuted, who've been oppressed. Every aspect of their lives has been determined by the state. And that does require genuinely, as you suggest, a real commitment to learning something about the historical background, doesn't it? It's not just automatic. As you say, it's simple on one level and requires genuine seriousness of purpose on behalf of non-Indigenous people voting at the referendum. It's important, of course, to realise that there were very well-intentioned, well-meaning quote, attempts on the part of the invaders to recognise the plight and, uh, of Indigenous people in the face of invasion, 
also very important, I think, to realise that the frontier is not a simple two-sided affair. It's a very murky space. The boundaries often aren't clear. Also that there's a lot of collaboration between white and black Australians when it came, for example, to advocating Indigenous rights. There's a long history of collaboration between white and black. That's a long way of saying yes. It hasn't been a clear-cut case of being anti-Aboriginal on the part of the invaders since uh, 1788. And there have been very many well-meaning attempts to better and improve the lives of Indigenous people. Right back to the 19th century. Now, often these involve, as in the case of, for example, a place called Corrandirk, east of Melbourne in the Yarra Valley, an Aboriginal reserve run by the Victorian government from 1863 until 1924. All people from the Kulin Nation had been sent there, dispossessed of their land, moved to Corrandirk, and you can see that collaboration between missionaries, between Aboriginal people, writing petitions, demanding their rights, that is mixed in all of those other beliefs that were prevailing at the time, that Aboriginal people were inferior, that they were hostile, and so on, so that they were a threat to white civilization. sometimes. Even the well-meaning intentions were laced with racism, often, because it was so much part of the culture. And... Reading into this historical background, one notices also that there's a desire to control. So uh, well-meaning attempts to help, undergirded by racist attitudes towards the object of this sort of charitable impulse, but always there as well a desire to control, isn't there? Yes, and I think that goes really to the heart of what Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has said recently when trying to explain why the voice is needed in the Australian Constitution, in that it's time for Australian governments to do things with Aboriginal people rather than to them. As recently, for example, as 2007, we had the so-called intervention in Australia, which was initiated by the Conservative John Howard government in 2007, And essentially, this was characterised as the Northern Territory emergency response. It was meant to last for five years. At the time, Howard said the Commonwealth had to act because the Northern Territory government hadn't responded to a report about sexual abuse in Aboriginal communities, remote communities. It's important to realise, I think, the intervention was a federal government initiative, but it applied only to communities in the Northern Territory, not throughout all of Australia, but it involved 70 regional Indigenous communities who were targeted. It featured, for example, compulsory health checks of Aboriginal people and their children. It featured police, health workers and teachers carrying out those checks. It featured income management and so on. So it was again an attempt to completely control, to take power, self-determination and control away from Aboriginal communities and to literally run their lives through the federal government. Indeed, by quasi-military means. Yes. The army was sent in at one point, and those images of soldiers in uniform going into Aboriginal communities you know, that went around the world, it spoke to our failure. After two centuries, still repeating the same mistakes. That's another thing that we're trying to do here with this referendum, is to stop making those same mistakes. At this point, I'm actually going to refer to your recent book that I mentioned at the very beginning of the first part of this podcast, Return to Uluru. 
if people want to know something slightly more substantial than a one-page statement from the heart that they might want to read, I recommend to listeners your return to Uluru, which is a kind of a detective story about an actual instance of frontier violence in the area of Uluru in the 1930s. I was wondering if we can describe that on one level as an attempt to write the balance by giving voice to black victims of frontier violence. And in answering this question, I'm wondering if you can perform the Herculean task of summing up your book in a few lines to amplify the point you're just making about the way experience by, of black people is mediated through white voices. My book, Return to Uluru, is exploring, extending, reassessing the history of the shooting of an Aboriginal man, Jochen, at Uluru in 1934 by a Northern Territory policeman, which was symptomatic of the frontier violence that was still going on in Central Australia in the early 20th century. In fact, it was only six years after the Coniston Massacre in Central Australia, which was one of the worst massacres in Australian history since 1788. So it's still a time of frontier violence. What my book tries to do is to track the history of this shooting, both in Indigenous oral history and in settler history. It was through the white archives, through the policeman's own personal records, that I discovered that he had lied to a Commonwealth Board of Inquiry after the shooting and, in fact, had purposefully, intentionally killed this man. All the time he'd claimed that he was just firing indiscriminately into a cave at Uluru, he actually had intended to kill him. What's more, through the process of that investigation, I discovered that the dead man's remains, Jochen's remains, were still in the South Australian Museum in Adelaide. In October last year, after a lot of negotiation, those remains were brought home to Uluru roughly 90 years after the event that took place. It's not the violence even so much that's shocking, but it's, as Noel Pearson says, the casual parsimony of it all. The casualness with which we have dismissed the importance of the loss of Indigenous lives compared to non-Indigenous lives. It took almost a century for this injustice to be exposed and to be righted. Even then, looking at the families that day at the repatriation at Uluru, you can see that that history is still living still present in their lives. It's the casualness that is at least as shocking as the violence itself, because one recent example, one I cannot get out of my head, is the case of Veronica Nelson. Can you remind Australian listeners and perhaps tell our overseas listeners about this young Indigenous woman? Veronica Nelson was a 37-year-old Gunjitmara, Jaja Warung, Wiradjuri and Yorta woman arrested on suspicion of shoplifting an alleged breach of bail in January 2020. She died in her cell in the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre in Melbourne, despite having begged for help on the intercom apparently 40 times because of her deteriorating health. Fellow inmate Kylie Baston tried to help Veronica and was treated with contempt by the guards. They wouldn't listen either to Veronica Nelson or to Kylie Baston. Veronica died in agony. The coroner agreed the death had been preventable. The voice of these women was heard, of course, but no one seemed to care enough to listen to those voices. What you've just described, Mark, is a single instance of what are known in Australia as Aboriginal deaths in custody, a long-running crisis on which a Royal Commission of Inquiry tabled its report in 1991. Since the conclusion of that report, 
according to the Australian Institute of Criminology, a further 549 Indigenous people have died in police custody. The case of Veronica Nelson sadly is typical, a woman whose death could have been avoided, but whose voice was ignored. And we've reached another chilling phenomenon, the Great Australian Silence. Great Australian Silence in that sentence is capitalised. It wasn't a historian, it was an Australian anthropologist, W. H. Stanner, who coined that term way back in the 1960s. But the Great Australian Silence was, and is, a historical phenomenon. So I will ask you a question about Stanner and what he meant, Mark. Stanner talked about a cult of national forgetfulness and that there was a great Australian silence about the knowledge, memory, recollection of what had occurred between white settlers and Indigenous people in Australia in so many different ways. One of the really important points is that Stanner was arguing that Australians weren't simply forgetting that history that was perpetrated against Indigenous people, that they in fact chose not to remember. Lest anyone think that there is an inherent political bias behind this erasure of black experience, we should make clear that responsibility for the shameful failure to listen to Indigenous voices is shared by both of Australia's major parties. Veronica Nelson's tragic death occurred under a state Labor government. In Western Australia, repeated calls to ameliorate the inhuman conditions in which Indigenous prisoners are housed in a horrific facility named Roeburn Regional Prison have been ignored since 2015, again by a Labor state government. In the Northern Territory, Aboriginal children as young as 10 have been confined in cruel and degrading conditions in the Dondale Detention Centre under both Conservative Country Liberal Party and Labor Party administrations. These scandalous offences against Indigenous human rights are not a secret, but when Indigenous voices are raised in protest, non-Indigenous Australia seems to listen without really hearing and certainly without committing to meaningful or sustained action. The symbolism is hard to miss. Indigenous people need a guaranteed voice in both a literal and a metaphorical sense. One of the more specious charges made by the no case for the referendum, however, is that embedding a voice to Parliament in the Australian Constitution will somehow accord Indigenous people rights that the rest of us don't have, that it will give them privileged status. Nothing could be further from the truth. As we said in the first part of our conversation, inequality and racism was actually literally baked into our democracy in its foundational document, the Constitution. The voice is in fact trying to recognise and correct the racism and inequality that is embedded in the Constitution and that we have been happy to live with, and it's no longer acceptable. It never was. The point is, this is the way that Indigenous people have asked us to alter the situation. Democracy creates citizens. Citizens are equal before the law. Therefore, democracy is a guarantee of equality for everyone. Therefore, why would you need a voice for one particular group of people? In the abstract, that sounds perfectly reasonable. But as I think what you've been saying demonstrates, the democracy from the beginning in Australia was a white project designed for white people, which didn't accidentally but deliberately excluded people who were not white, not just Aboriginals, indeed. It excluded them most forcefully and most completely. I'm going to ask you to play futurologist and pundit and political commentator just for a moment. What are the chances, in your view, that the voice referendum will succeed 
Australians, for instance, tend to remember with affection and great pleasure and satisfaction the 1967 referendum when over 90% of the vote and every state in the Australian Commonwealth voted yes. The problem is 67's an outlier, isn't it? It's definitely an outlier and it's also extremely different to the current referendum that we're facing primarily because in 1967 there was no formal no case, whereas in the referendum Australia will take place later this year, there is a formal no case. So that's making it harder for the yes case. So if you look at the stats, in a technical sense, the odds are really stacked against the chances of success for the voice referendum. I mean, historically, since 1901, Australia has held 19 referenda, proposing a total of 44 changes, yet only eight of those changes have been agreed to in 123 years. Now, that statistic would give cause for (laughs) reflection to most people. There's a structural bias against successful referenda too. It's not just the particular issues, is it? That's right. In Australia, under the terms of Section 128 in the Australian Constitution, for any referendum to succeed, you need a double majority. You need a majority of voters, a national majority, over 50% of the total number of voters, and you need a majority of states, which means effectively you need four out of six Australian states. On that score, it's important to realise that for Australians who live in the Australian Capital Territory or the Northern Territory, because those two jurisdictions are not states, people who live in those territories, their vote is not equal to those who live in states in Australia because their vote only counts to the national majority, not to the majority of states because the territories are not states. So there's an inequality there. You could say there's a structural gerrymander because each Australian state counts in that majority of states as one, despite the fact their population varies enormously. What about the no case that you were referring to that didn't exist in 1967 and which is firing on all cylinders at the moment in 2023? If you ask the question, who is leading the no case, people would see that that is the leader of the opposition, Peter Dutton and Warren Mundine and the National Party Senator Jacinta Price, the latter two being Indigenous, of course. But if you ask that question of who was leading the yes case, I think the answer to that question is over five or six or seven different people. There is no clear leader of this yes campaign. That could be a problem, we'll have to see. You've just made me realise some extraordinary irony, given that it's the no case which accuses the voice of being a kind of Canberra political plot but it's very clearly led by a politician, namely Peter Dutton, the leader of the Conservative opposition. And the yes case is perhaps rather diffused because it doesn't have as decisive, clear leadership from Canberra because it's being run by people working in the regions. It's an irony and it's a misrepresentation on Dutton's part because here's a person who stands up and alleges that the voice is a product of a Canberra-based elite. And after all, who is Peter Dutton? Peter Dutton is a leader of the opposition. He works in Canberra. He wants to be Prime Minister of Australia. He wants to reside in Canberra as the Prime Minister. Presumably, he believes in the capacity of federal government. Presumably, he believes in Parliament. Why does he disparage it? Where the no case is coming from, it's important to remember that it's playing pretty much out of the no case 
that was in existence in 1999 when Australia held a referendum over the question of becoming a republic or not. And that referendum failed because of the success of the no case, which was able to appeal to people on both left and right. They argued against a republic because it did not offer the opportunity for Australians to vote for the president of this future republic. In the same way that some opponents of the voice on the progressive left are saying the voice doesn't go far enough. One of the difficulties that the yes case faces is that the no case covers a broad spectrum of politics in Australia. It goes from the far right, from the One Nation Party and Pauline Hanson, right across to Senator Lydia Thorpe and her Black Sovereign movement on the left. It includes Peter Dutton, the leader of the Liberal Party opposition, and the Nationals, their coalition partner, the Party of Regional Australia, the Conservative Party. Also, we have Indigenous spokespersons for the Nationals, Jacinta Price, people outside Parliament like Warren Mundine, who Australians see as Aboriginal people opposing the voice. And that also makes it difficult for the ES case. They're in a small minority, but they really figure very powerfully, don't they, because of their indigeneity? They do, and also because one of the curious things about a referendum is that once you go into that referendum process, the no-case arguments are validated simply by virtue of the fact that they are the alternative. You have yes on one side, you have no on the other, and therefore, for people who don't or have not followed the debate closely up to that point in time, there's this idea that somehow I just have to choose from either of these two sides, that they're both equally valid. It establishes a false equivalence, doesn't it? Exactly. And under the Constitution, Section 128, which we just spoke about, they really only have to appeal to three states to win. If they can succeed in stopping three states from voting yes, they've won the referendum. So because of the necessity for a double majority, the yes case has to win a majority of the national vote and a majority of states while the no case only needs victory in three states. Or to turn that on its head, the no case only has to stop yes from winning in three states, and they have defeated the referendum. Even if we get over 50% of the national vote, if there's not a majority of states, it won't get passed. So their task is easier. Also, their task is easier because it's simply sowing division, doubt, fear. The biggest message is fear of change. I had one person say to me in conversation casually a few weeks ago, I love Australia and I don't want it to change. That's a very hard thing to respond to. It's what the no case is essentially arguing. The Australian constitution has served us well. It's been a source of stability, a source of continuity. Why would we change it? That, of course, avoids other questions. Which we are we talking about? Whose stability? And it avoids the issues we were talking about in our previous episode, like the fact that the original constitution deliberately excluded Indigenous peoples, and the post-1967 iteration doesn't mention them at all. Perhaps the most effective scare tactic of all being used by the nose campaign is the one about there being insufficient detail, this idea that if you don't know all the detail, you should vote no. The point there is that not only is there sufficient detail a mouse click away or a single search away on your phone, it is that simple to find out what's going on. The proposal's actually so elegantly simple 
that if you spend, and I'm exaggerating in when I say the five minutes necessary to read the referendum proposal itself and the Uluru Statement, it becomes almost impossible to oppose such a modest, reasonable, quite inspiring idea. That notwithstanding, at least according to the major polls, support has been slipping in recent months, hasn't it, Mark? From June, most of the major polls, news poll, resolve, the Guardian polls, started to show a steady rise in support for the no case. Still a substantial number of people undecided, but the most recent news polls showed below 50% support in every state. And that's extremely concerning. In light of that slippage, what should the Yes campaign do? They need to avoid as much as possible getting stuck in a simple to and fro with a no case of replying to every furphy and lie and scandalous sort of accusation that the no case puts forward. Somehow they have to rise above that, having those 20,000 volunteers to go out into Australian communities and try and have conversations with people to bring them over. If they were to just bring over even half the undecided voters, the referendum could be won. There's still a large number of people who are undecided, and I don't think that the Yes campaign has really hit full throttle yet, and I'm sure they're holding back a lot of things until the referendum date is announced. And I'll just say one other thing, and that is that both sides are seeking to distance themselves from politics. So the no case is saying this is a Canberra voice. But the yes case in a different way is saying we want to take this debate now away from politics and we want to bring it out into the Australian community. There's a tension here because it's a referendum, it's a political process. It involves politicians. Without politicians and parliament, you don't get a referendum. I don't think you can avoid the political. The real question is what sort of political engagement? How does that politics engage with the community? That's the real question. The character of that political engagement, not whether it's political or not, it's more the point of let's change the way we make our politics, change our political debate, change our political discussion and have a more informed, respectful, nuanced, understanding debate. That brings me perfectly to the last question I wanted to ask you, Mark. This week I listened to an interview with Megan Davis, to whom both of us have referred. She's a cobble-cobble woman, constitutional lawyer, pro-vice-chancellor Indigenous at the University of New South Wales and a professor of law at University of New South Wales. And she's more upbeat. She said that campaigning on the ground in the regions, she's not picking up the negativity reflected in the national polls. And she's also very positive about the impact of campaigning and its capacity to transform those uncommitted votes. She is emphasising the empathy she's finding out on the ground. She's talking really about building trust. Now, I know you think trust and empathy are key, don't you? As I said earlier, the empathy that's required to recognise and understand a different historical experience. Also, the trust that is placed in Australian voters, in all of us, to cast an informed vote. Not just a feel-good vote, but one that's informed by an understanding of that history and how we've come to this point and why we've come to this point. If we stop, if we read, if we think, if we consider and reflect upon that history and the reasons why 
the voice has been proposed, I think then we can see more people being brought across to vote yes in a positive way. I'm reminded of the words of uh, the former German Chancellor, Angela Merkel, when at that crisis point with Syrian refugees coming across into Germany, she said to her people, we can do this. Not to respond to that fear of change, but actually to say no, because the future of the voice is the very fabric of our politics and how we conduct ourselves politically and as a people, and we can make it work to our betterment, to the betterment of Indigenous Australians and to the betterment of Australia as a whole. I think that's a wonderful note to finish on because what you've just picked up on once again is the fact that this should not be about left versus right that in the United States we had a progressive democratic president, Barack Obama, whose slogan was, yes, we can. And more recently in Germany, there was a chancellor from the centre-right who said essentially the same thing, appealing to what the Americans might call the better angels of her citizens' nature. And I would observe in that context as well, it's not an accident, perhaps, that in relation to the democratic crisis we're seeing in the UK, the US, India, Hungary, Turkey, one could go on, Trust and empathy are the foundations that need reconstruction. These are places which are at risk of falling into what is now being called illiberal democracy or authoritarian status. I hope we've shown in these two episodes how historically freighted current debate about the voice in Australia is and how everything only makes sense when we pull on the historical threads that attach this issue to the origins of the Australian Federation in 1901. Mark, for your knowledge and expertise in all the areas related to our conversation in these two podcast episodes, and as an old mate and fellow habitué of the 8th floor at Sydney Uni, thank you for talking to me about The Voice on Making Sense of History. Thanks very much, Nick, and thanks for your expertise and knowledge as well, and thanks to everyone for listening. We acknowledge the elders past and present of the Wadanjeri people of the Kulin Nation and of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, traditional owners of the lands on which this episode of Making Sense of History was recorded. The podcast was produced by Peter Adams from the University of Sydney School of Humanities. Music